Okay, thank you. Um, it's worth saying actually that the slight sort of chronological oddity of this evening, whereby we're actually going back in time, actually makes complete and utter intellectual sense. <laughs> because quite a lot of this paper is um, premised on a desire, or it grew out of a desire to go back to the moment before the crazy reception that Michael was talking about, the sort of wonderfully brilliant devotion. Um, that goes towards Whitman both on both sides of the Atlantic, really, you know, through, through the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, and go back to a moment um, of its inception, really. And uh, it's actually probably in, in a sort of less celebratory vein than most writing about or speaking about Whitman and Blake, but to look um, at some of the ironies, really, of that early context. So the question uh, or the, the, the reception that, that I'm talking about this evening is um, the idea of Whitman as a prophet of democracy. Um, and more specifically, the received reading of Blake and Whitman as twin prophets of democracy. So um, this received reading began in 1868 um, with Algernon Charles Swinburne's essay um, on William Blake, which is not an essay at all, and this is not the kind of thing you, you go and read the night before you're going to a seminar, thinking, I'll just read the essay, and it'll be fine, and then it's something like this. <laughs> this did actually happen to me once. But anyway, since then I have, I have read the whole thing. Um, and it's a rather long book about William Blake, which at its very end brings in a comparison with Walt Whitman. And Swinburne wrote, it's, it's a longer comparison than this, but it begins the points of contact and sides of likeness between William Blake and Walt Whitman are so many and so grave as to afford some grand reason to those who preach the transfusion of souls, uh, the transition of souls, or the transfusion of spirits. Um, it, obviously, it was exuberant in its enthusiasm, it was clear in its affection uh, for both poets. It's worth saying, actually, that Swinburne became slightly more reserved in his admiration for Whitman. Um, as uh, the kind of crew that he called the Whitmaniacs. Um, I don't know, they didn't call themselves the Whitmaniacs, no, did they? No. That, was a, that was a derogatory term that was put on there. Anyway, as, as Whitmanism or Whitmanism um, got more and more energetic, Swinburne um, drew back a little bit from his. I think, you know, I think he probably felt a bit responsible for starting it, actually. And then he said things like, oh, yes, he, Whitman is the prophet of democracy, but not completely so because he's so always fighting his case out on the platform. Um, so he became, I think, a little bit more kind of desirous of distancing himself from what he saw, I think, as something that was um, just becoming a little bit too much. Um, but in 1868, he was definitely exuberant, definitely enthusiastic. But the context, the sort of interesting context, I think, of Swinburne's comparison is both aesthetic and political. And Swinburne was part of a circle of um, left-leading, avant-garde, international intellectuals who had strong Republican sympathies. Um, and they included um, uh, revolutionaries like Giuseppe Mazzini, who was currently in, in exile in England at the time. Um, and they wanted to see a fundamental change in the form of the nation. And so by drawing his comparison with Whitman, uh, Swinburne was seeking, I think, to present Blake as a homegrown version of the self-declared American prophet of democracy. <coughs> Um, as somebody who could invigorate English republicanism and renew a spirit of contemporary democracy on his side of the Atlantic. And it was 
1866, actually, sort of two years before this, um, Swinburne had written that Blake was a Republican under the very shadow of the Jewish, a lover of America, of freedom, and France from the first to the last. Truth is, is more qualified, but I think that would take a rather long-term discourse into Blake, which, which you know, I, I didn't quite have time for now. But it was certainly true that Swinburne felt that what, what Whitman was seen to be doing for America, Blake could be made to do for England. Sorry, Swinburne, yes, Swinburne felt that. Now, arguably, 1868 should have been a moment of hope for those who championed democracy. Um, the Second Reform Act of 1867, I couldn't quite help but put up Gladstone and Disraeli just because they've got such weird faces. There's no other thing these now. I didn't talk about them a little bit, but I thought we could look at their judging, judging faces. Um, so the Second Reform Act of, of 1867 fundamentally widened the franchise, um, and so it allowed more people to vote than ever before. So, you know, in terms of the sort of progress of democracy, this should be a good thing. But the bill was introduced by Disraeli's Conservative government um, and in a manner which really irritated um, left-wing supporters of republicanism who allied themselves much more with Gladstone. And Disraeli was very careful to present it as a conservative measure. He was really keen to emphasise, and he emphasised repeatedly, that this should not be seen as a prelude to democracy but a bill necessary to preserve the Constitution, right? So it was a conservative rather than radical and progressive measure. And Disraeli did this because he was hoping for cross-party support. So trying to bring the reforms closer to his original ideas, the recently defeated Liberal Prime Minister Gladstone uh, attacked the bill so vehemently that he alienated a great number of his own supporters in the process, and he inadvertently strengthened Disraeli's position. Right? So he kind of... Uh, it, it backfired, rather. Disraeli was so determined to slight that stone and ensure the Reform Act was passed by a Tory that he accepted a Liberal amendment that fundamentally changed the nature of the franchise. The amended bill was proved, uh, approved in both houses and Gladstone was thoroughly humiliated. Right? So what turned out, what was initially in its conception a Liberal idea was pretty much hijacked by the Conservative Party and pushed through in a manner that really, really, really pissed off Gladstone and his uh, supporters. It's always good to see that things change in British politics. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, with fairly undisguised peak, um, John Morley, who was, among other things, Gladstone's biographer, wrote, the persons who believe that a mere change in political forms without a change in moral or religious ideas or in the material circumstances of the community is able to produce a revolution ought to have their eyes open. Now, Morley was also the editor of the Fortnightly Review, which was a publication um, that served as a focal point for Swinburne's circle. And Morley thought, he clearly thought that the periodical and that his friends and contributors, or he wanted to present the idea that these people might succeed where politicians had failed. He warned in one of his uh, editorials, entitled The Chamber of Mediocracy, which is a reflection obviously on the House of Commons, um, he said it was a little clique of ingenious literary men who, which was shaking France to its foundations a hundred years ago, while the nobles and the court were busy with their diversions. So you can see what he's doing here. He's likening the British Parliament to the late 18th century French court. Morley implied that it was rather undemocratic, that it was outdated, that it was guilty of failing the public, 
and that they should probably have their heads chopped off. Um, he clearly felt that his own contributors, uh, his own group of friends, were about to have their moment. And he implied that the literatus, to use one of Whitman's terms, the literary man, the prophet artist, might be more of a threat to the status quo than a whole host of bickering, ineffective, and ultimately conservative politicians. And Morley, like Swinburne, looked to America's self-declared prophet of democracy as a model. Right. So the fortnightly was really important in uh, Whitman's early British reception in the 1860s. And in 1868, it featured an article um, by Whit Whitman's friend, the London-based um, minister, Moncure Conway, uh, who was really important for promoting uh, Whitman's reputation in England. Um, and Conway quoted at length, it was also a kind of cannibalisation of Whitman's poetry, a sort of showcasing of it, bringing it to readers who uh, as yet you know, probably haven't seen it. Um, and he quoted at length from Leaves of Grass and characterised Whitman uh, very much as a sort of prophet of democracy. Um, so the relationship drew heavily on the connections between prophecy, between democracy, and between national formation, between how a new nation might emerge. The, the, so he, he cited some sort of uh, characteristic, what he called characteristic passages. And these included extracts from the Proto-Leaf, which begin, Take my needs, America, but make welcome for them everywhere, for they are your own offspring. Um, it also, uh, it, it, made, it made a big play of Whitman as this poet of new beginnings, right? representative of America's nascent promise, capable of, of, of ventriloquizing its democratic potential. Um, so uh, Conway created a world primal again, vistas of glory incessant and branching, new race, dominating previous ones, round afar, new politics, new literature and religion, new inventions and arts. These, my, these, my voice announcing, I will sweep them more but arise. Um, it was this same year uh, that these appeared that Swinburne was writing that Blake was a Republican under the very shadow of the jib, right? So as he uh, would do again in 1868, he identified Blake with Whitman on the grounds of the transcendent natural man. Um, he wrote that Blake's books preach almost exactly the same gospel as Whitman's. Um, and this was the idea of Whitman that was that was very much current, right? So you can see the kind of idea of Blake uh, that, that that was was coming out at the same time. Now, the first English edition of Whitman's poetry um, and, uh, was published uh, two years um, after Conway's review of Leaves of Grass in the same year as Swinburne's essay on Blake, um, and it was edited by William Michael Rossetti. Um, who was uh, also a devotee of Blake. Um, he was friends with Swinburne, he was part of the circle which gathered around the fortnightly. He was, as I'm sure you know, extremely well connected in terms of um, the sort of artistic and literary scene that Rossetti always seemed to be somewhere in it. Um, and Rossetti wrote in his preface, this book then, the book then, taken as a whole, is the poem both of personality and democracy and it may be added, of American nationalism. Um, reviewing Swinburne's essay on Blake for the fortnightly review, Conway called Whitman uh, in this same year the reappearance of William Blake in America, 
right? So by 1868, um, Blake and Whitman were frequently united in the minds of those who wished to imagine a kind of literature that might uh, both embody and help realise Britain as a new republic, as a new democracy. Now, Whitman began by thinking this uh, transatlantic comparison was good for business. Um, he, was, he was an extremely handicapped publicist. He knew which side his bread was buttered. And when Swinburne sent him a copy uh, of the book, Whitman sent his thanks not to the author, but to the publisher, uh, John Camden Hotton. Now, this is important because John Camden Hotton was also Whitman's publisher. Um, so uh, Whitman may have liked it, I think, when Swinburne was, was, was praising him. Um, and Swinburne also uh, titled his own collection of poetry, Songs Before Sunrise, in homage to Whitman, uh, Whitman's songs, uh, songs of Parting. Um, and he took this as laudatory, he was quite pleased with it. But he was less than thrilled um, by the implied threat to his originality and to his American identity, his identity as a national poet, his distinct American. And the threat materialised when the idea of resemblance between Whitman and Blake was more than taken up by Whitman's friend John Swinton. Now, Swinton was the managing editor of the New York Times. Um, he was a strong supporter both of Whitman and of Leaves of Grass. Um, and he was a really old friend. He was responsible for helping to get Whitman's brother sent home during the Civil War. Um, but he seemed to have made one rather striking misjudgment um, in relationship with his poets on the subject of Blake. In a letter to mutual friends, uh, William and Ella, Ellen O'Connor, um, dated September the 27th, 1868, Whitman wrote, Swinton has lately been posting himself about William Blake. His poems has the new London edition of WB in, in two volumes. That was the Pickering edition of, of 1868, uh, edited by Rossetti. Um, he, Swinton, Swinton gives me rather new information in one respect, says that the formal resemblance between several pieces of Blake and my pieces is so marked that he, Swinton, has with persons that partially know me, passed them off temporarily as mine and read them aloud as such. He asked me pointedly whether I had not met with Blake's productions in my youth, etc., and that said that Swinburne's idea of resemblance was not so wild after all. Quite funny, isn't it? Uh, so he was keeping quite pissed off. <laughs> O'Connor obviously knew his friend better than Swinton, or at least was rather more, um, I think, authentic in his dealings with him, because he re replied with exactly the right words to pacify him. And he said Swinton's discovery of the resemblance in form between Yves of Grass and Blake's poetry is, in my humble opinion, a mare's nest of the first water. The resemblance is extremely superficial, about as much between the Gregorian chant bellowed by bullnet priests with donkey lips and a first-class, infinitely varied, complex melody with Italian opera, sung by voices half human, half divine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, in other words, he knew why the comparison had rankled, and he, you know, you replied to this, this rather tongue-in-cheek response. It was all very well for Swinburne to pay, play tribute to Whitman as the energetic and pro prophetic voice of a new American-led democratic poetic, but to suggest, as Swinton did, that Whitman's poetry was not only foreshadowed by uh, that of someone old, English, and dead, but that it was indistinguishable from it, was guaranteed, I think, to raise the hackles of the self-proclaimed American bar. 
to add insult to injury, Swinton had dared to imply that Whitman might have been copying Blake. Now, Swinburne, Conway and Swinton were relatively free from the acute anxieties of nationalism, an influence that increasingly troubled Whitman's democratic vision. Swinton may not have realised that his letter would have rankled. Um, perhaps like Conway, he saw the resemblance as another indication of Whitman's universally prophetic world, a kind of mystical identification. Um, how much better if there are more like you? It means you're tapping into some essential truth. In 1868, however, Whitman was writing Democratic Vistas, although that wasn't, wouldn't be published until 1871. Um, his Civil War collection drum taps was known, and his elegy for Lincoln, recognized by Swinburne as a, a beautiful piece of, of music and color, a superb piece of music and color. But for the most part, for most people, it, and it seems, I think, for Swinton, Whitman was still the large and optimistic poet of the 1855 Leaves of Grass. Um, and I think we have some evidence uh, that he was this for Swinton at this moment here. In, on the 1st of October 1868, so this same year, the following um, piece of, uh, appeared in the Minor Topics column of the New York Times, which was edited by Swinton. With bright, crispy autumn weather, Walt Whitman again makes his appearance on the sidewalks of Broadway. His large, massive personality, his grave and prophetic yet free and manly appearance, his insouciance of manner and movement, his easy and negligent yet keen and wholesome dress, make up a figure of an individuality that attracts the attention of every passerby. The reality was somewhat different. Democratic Vistas, I think, was a rather desperate sounding of its own empty prospect. Whereas in Leaves of Grass, the largeness of the nation, the corresponding largeness of spirit, is bound into the expansive form of the verse, the prose form of democratic business, its prose rather than poetry, was both constrained and constraining. Now, this is not to say that there are no constraints in Leaves of Grass. In fact, I think the celebratory mode, and we can see this oddly in Whitman's reception, which is hugely celebratory, but the celebratory mode has a habit of fixing people where they are. Yes, if you celebrate women as wives, mothers, and prostitutes, that's very good to include everybody, but it doesn't really allow them much room for other activities. It doesn't really allow them to occupy anything outside of the role in which you confer. And it's always seemed to me a sort of point of, of acute discomfort, actually, reading Whitman, um, you know, that he celebrates the slaveholder and the slave, that there's room for the slaveholder in his vision of America. That there's room, you know, that there is no actual, in some sense, there's a real conservatism about this writing, which wants to keep things as they are. Um, but I think, um, in, in some sense, this is both the sort of aim, the inevitable limitation of the democratized um, prophetic voice, right? It's arguably an insoluble tension that if you're assuming voices and you remain somehow tied to them, um, it becomes difficult to manoeuvre outside of them. But it's, it's, it's fundamentally one, I think, in, in 1855, that is filled with energetic purpose. And it's not the tension of democratic vistas. When Walt Whitman announces himself as disorderly, fleshy, and sensual in the use of grass, he was filled with optimistic purpose, right? A sense of sort of breeding possibility. In democratic vistas, he writes with, with a barely concealed sense of his own failure. Again and again, he 
calls for this literatus which will lead America into futurity. The priest departs, the divine literatus comes. But like, sort of, it, there's a sort of Hamlet-esque quality, I think, to, um, to democratic vistas. It reminds me of that moment in Hamlet where you know, he turns around and says, oh, that his too, too solid flesh would melt. He celebrates, uh, this is Whitman again, he celebrates the fervid and tremendous idea, melting everything else with resistless heat and solving all lesser and definite distinctions in vast, indefinite spiritual and emotional power. So there's a sort of wanting to get rid of form in democratic vistas, of wanting to do away with everything that seems so burdensome, so weighty, so problematic, um, that he doesn't quite know how to reconcile that formally, how, what to do, I think, with his voice in democratic vistas, in a way that he does seem to know what to do with his voice in Leaves of Grass, right? The idea in democratic vistas, and it's always capitalised, remains just that. There's no real sense of its actualization, no real sense of how it comes to be. So my suggestion in this paper is that we might recover a different kind of connection between Blake and Whitman than the one, than the one that has dominated. That we might see them as to some extent, to a great extent, penning prophecies that will not ventriloquise a nation. And in which democratic advancement, the hope of a new world as it appeared in their respective historical moments, obviously Blake writing in the late 18th century, it is the moment of, of American Revolution, and Whitman um, coming rather late to the party, actually, you know, after the moment of, re of revolution, is, is, is always aware, as, of, as are all of his generation, that they're not the first generation of Americans, that they are a little bit late, that they're not the revolutionaries. However, you know, so those claims to earliness, those claims to nascency, always shadowed by a bit of anxiety, a bit of kind of feeling that we should have done it by now. Why haven't we got a form of our nation? Um, so I think that this, this sort of democratic advancement, this hope of a new world, in some ways in both the poetry of Blake and Whitman, starts to figure the collapse or the disintegration of prophetic voice. Now Blake and Whitman had a shared source for their vision of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. And this has been fairly well documented in terms of their metrical structures, their vivid use of personification, there's, there's quite a bit done on this. Um, what is a little bit less well documented, actually, probably because of the celebratory mode in which these two poets have been received, is um, one of the sort of most important qualities of Hebrew prophecy which they shared, which is frustration. Um, frustration expressed through, lament, through lamentation. Now, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah um, used lamentation to foreground the immediacy of the threat to their world. So it's much more effective to prophecy of future, uh, of future devastation if you imply that it's already happened. Um, and this mixture of <coughs> prophecy and lamentation meant that the message was also flexible enough to function as an urgent warning and a concern for all time. Uh, so the, the, the biblical, the Hebrew biblical prophet has this sort of odd position as both the sort of a voice crying in the wilderness, one on the margins who wants to kind of speak outside of society, and a kind of over-responsible, uber-responsible, burdened member of society who needs to speak to a sense of pressing crisis, a sense of a sort of moment of, of things going on. Um, but it also, I think, this mixture of prophecy and lamentation, and this frequent use of lamentation in biblical 
prophecy signals the frustration um, of uh, the, the biblical prophet artist. Um, so prophecy also, in warning, you know, using lamentation to warn of future devastation, also tips into a kind of genuine lamentation for worlds which might have been. Um, and a sense of a prophetic mission which is always fraught with doubt as to its success, which is always aware of the possibility of failure, which is always concerned with how effective, how socially effective the prophetic voice can be. Um, so, so I think, you know, in drawing on these Hebrew qualities, my sense is that Blake and Whitman are actually much more alive to this aspect of them than we've, we've realised um, or we've, we've spoken about. Um, now, Blake... Uh, revealed his dissatisfaction with the role of the prophet artist in the context of his writing about America, um, signalling uh, the doubt which, it, uh, you know, which accompanied his late 18th century hope for a new world, um, and the anxiety which shadowed, I think which always shadowed, his visionary enthusiasm. Now when Swinburne drew his comparison between Blake and Whitman, American readers would have only been able to read Blake's America in excerpted uh, forming Gilchrist's life of Blake. And it wouldn't have been that well known to, to British readers uh, either. Um, some, of the, some people would have seen it, but not many. I mean, it was really Gilchrist who brought him back, and then uh, the prophecies started to circulate later. And the songs were, were well known before, the visual stuff was well known before. Um, so they would have not seen the different versions of the Preludium. But a few copies of the Preludium to America ended thus. And this is this is the relation of Plate. Uh, the stern bard ceased, ashamed of his own song. Enraged he swung, his harp aloft sounding, then dashed its shining frame against a ruined pillar in glittering fragments. Silent he turned away, and wandered down the vales of Kent in sick and dread lamentings. Now, Blake's lines are in dialogue with, with the Hebrew prophets in the ways that I've said, but they're also in dialogue with Milton's Lycidas, a poem which is in mourning in some ways for its own song. Now, Lycidas begins as an elegy for someone we know it is premature but also too late to sing for. For Lycidas is dead and dead ere his prime. Young Lycidas has not left his peer. Who would not sing for Lycidas? He knew himself to sing and build the lofty rhyme. He must not float upon his watery beer unwept and welter to the parching wind without the need of some melodious tears. And I think echoing Milton, Blake's America, like Lycidas, begins with a feeling that we are out of time, right? Like the voice stops, the prophet loses his way, horizons narrow from America to Kent. This is perhaps not the right time and place for his song. In Milton's case, the emotion of, of grief feels forced into unnatural form as it becomes rather objectified as the song of the wandering poet, right? So we've got this poet wandering around um, singing, singing rather form formulaic about grief. Thus sang the uncouth sway into the oaks and rills, while the still morn went out with sandals grey. He touched the tender stops of various quills, with eager thought warbling his Doric lay. And now the sun had stretched out all the hills, and now was dropped into the western bay. At last he rose, twitched his mantle blue, tomorrow to fresh woods, and pastures new. 
I think the formalization of this passage makes the elegy seem it read in some ways like a, a sort of broken rehearsal of form rather than a spontaneous utterance of sorrow. And Blake's lines in the Preludium to America bring out the carefully suppressed, the formalized emotion in Lycidas, the anger and frustration at the song that is in mourning for its own purpose, that isn't happening at the right time. Blake localizes his poet's wanderings, uh, the wanderings of the uncouth swain, in the vales of Kent, none of Milton's pastures new or an American new world here. The English locale arguably closes down the poem's transatlantic vision, and Stern also suggests the kinds of strictness, constriction, that Blake's prophecies not only want to oppose, but also want to undo. Blake's lament, his elegy here, thrusts us back into the past, not forward to a new world of hope and possibility. Polluted and full of fear, it seems as if the very form of prophecy in which Blake invests so much hope suffers here in dialogue with the lament of Lycidas. So perhaps in this preludium to America, Blake saw the writing on the wall of American nationalism, the respect for sovereignty which allowed Tom Paine to champion American independence with very few misgivings was not something that Blake could abide very easily um, or for very long, however opposed he was to um, oppressive rules. In his prophetic book about America, we see him rehearsing anxieties about nationalism, not just at the level of theme. It's become a fairly routine observation of this prophetic book to, to say that Blake uses it partly as an arena to rehearse his disillusionment with French terror and the French Revolution, but also, I think, at the level of form. So to write America a prophecy is also to write America or France a lament, to express the limits of artistic vision as it runs up against the, uh, the sort of historical um, facts of, of politics um, and, and, sort of, and, and reality, really. Uh, something that is both out of time and out of place, um, talking about, about America, about France in the context of America, America in the context of France, a dash rather than, rather than resonant song. Like Blake, Whitman, um, yeah, Whitman became, uh, increasingly had reservations about his uh, ability to shapewise the form of the new nation. So Democratic Vistas, the text that I was talking about earlier, which he's writing in 1868 as everybody is making these hugely optimistic um, comparisons between him and Blake, is a text that is desperate to renew the idea of American exceptionalism, but is fraught with anxieties of nationalism. Um, like America, Whitman said, American, must, American poetry must extricate itself from even the greatest models of the past, and while courteous to them, must have entire faith in itself and be the product of its own democratic spirit only. But Whitman is most lyrical in this text when he's turning to old models, most unsure when he is looking ahead. It's the clouding of the way, the nostalgic mode of lamentation and regret that lends the vistas its chastened tone. And I think the problem is, is that Whitman's own faith in the demos was far from convincing. And without faith in the source of prophetic voice, the role of the prophet artist, the literatus, becomes defunct. Um, Whitman is somebody who's always been associated, always been read as a poet of American, of American earliness, right? And this is a quality which becomes known as the quality of American romanticism 
vis-a-vis -vis British Romanticism, right? But American Romanticism, the Whitman, the Emerson, they're known for their uh, for their exhortations of of, of earnestness. The truth is, I think that late Romantic discordance, um, the kind of discordance that sees Al Albion Sunders, that sees Promethean Bam, that sees Harold Exiled, this kind of discordance defines democratic vistas. The really, you know, the problem is that it's really unwelcome in the text. But Whitman doesn't know what to do with it. So in Songs of Parting, he worries um, that his voice will suddenly cease. He wanders um, through years prophetical, as if he's wandering through Hades. He sees kind of only strange phantoms of things to be um, that are sort of insubstantial, they're hauntingly comparable to his own death. It is, it is a real kind of underworld um, journey that he takes there. Ironically, though, Swinburne's own collection of Republican poetry, Songs Before Sunrise, was titled in, in homage to Whitman's songs, uh, songs of Party, and he included this very laudatory tribute to his American muse. Part of their singer be for us more than our singer can be. So in other words, in his desire to capitalise on American associations with freshness and new beginning, Swinburne either didn't notice or else deliberately reversed the haunting and unwelcome sense of late in the writings of both Blake and Whitman. Like Blake, Whitman never gave up on his investment in prophecy as a source of national renewal, even as he repeatedly registered his sense of its limitations, its disintegrations, especially in the later years of his career. But far from being, as Swinburne hoped, a voice of nascent promise who might ventriloquise a new form of democratic nationalism, both Blake and Whitman suggest that the nation will not, in fact, be prophesied into being. Lamenting Westward expansion, uh, which is the most sort of concrete example of 19th century American nationalism in Whitman's moment, Whitman declared it is as if we are being, um, being somehow endowed with a vast and more and more thoroughly appointed body and left with little or no soul. Blake was characterized by Swinburne as one who, like Whitman, was able to democratise the voice of prophecy, ventriloquise the new republic. But it may well be that Blake and Whitman have a truer affinity in their distrust of democratic nationalism, um, as it emerged in the republican ambitions of their respective historical moments, and as it's reflected in the disintegration of prophetic voice, which relies on this kind of vatic um, uh, quality, which seems to be necessarily undone by legislative progress, as it were, by the things that, that consolidate body and form. Uh, and that is what I'm going to end with.